You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Good afternoon. This is John Corr and the Reverend C.L. Mitchell coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. This is the Living Truth Podcast. In case this is your first time listening to us, uh, we're two friends who love to get together to study the, the Word of God, who talk about God and Jesus, and the Bible and life. And we have a lot of fun doing it. And uh, by the way, we are actually adding YouTube to our regimen or to our to our what do you call it whatever you call it it's we're gonna be on youtube so we are new to the whole youtube thing so be gracious with us we're we're amateurs but um uh we're actually in the process of adding all of our previous recording all of our podcasts onto youtube and then eventually we'll have everything on youtube as well as our podcast and so if you go to youtube it's living truth podcast you can search for John Corr and C.L. Mitchell, and you should be able to find us. Anyway, speaking of Reverend C.L. Mitchell, how you doing, buddy? I'm well. How are you doing? Man? I'm doing great. We are, <clears throat> it's been a while, as usual, because our schedules are always hard to, uh, you're a busy man. <laughs> <laughs> you're a very busy man. <laughs> um, you're like that Stretch Armstrong guy, you know? <laughs> Um, but we have we have fun. I'm, I'm glad that uh, we're finally able to do this, and we are continuing with uh, the book of Jonah, and we're finally in the last chapter. CL, it seems like it's been forever <laughs> for, for like for such a tiny book, a really small book. We're finally in the last chapter, and uh, which I'm excited for. So, if you are at home, and by the way, you can see us. We do have our coffees here. Um, caffeinated decaf you know <laughs> and we also have um some candy some of our favorite candies so we have fun and we're comfortable anyway so we're in the book of jonah if you have your bible grab it and uh we're just imagining that you are over overhearing us listening to us have a conversation that's what we envision that we're at the table and you are seated nearby listening into the conversation and so with that, let's get started. I'm going to, we're going to actually be in Jonah chapter four. I'm going to give her a running start with chapter three, leading in the four. And uh, in chapter three, uh, if you remember that uh, the people of Nineveh have responded, the king has, has called for a fast, has called for you know, a, a nationwide uh, repentance. And uh, he says, that uh, he proclaimed in chapter 3, verse 7, he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, uh, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, which is uh, a demonstration of repentance and sorrow. And let men call on God earnestly that he may, each, each may turn from his wicked way, 
and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now, verse 10, this is key. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Remember early in the story? You know, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. Jonah, go and tell him the message. And, of course, Jonah ran away. We discussed that. Finally, Jonah gets on the scene, and he goes, hey, listen, God's going to destroy you, or, or you know, and, and they repented. And so that's, that's a good thing, verse, verse 10 of chapter 3. Now we get into chapter 4. It says, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this... What I said while I was still in my country, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, or Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, therefore, O Lord, please, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now let's stop there because the last chapter is like in three sections. An interesting, not the response you would expect a, a prophet of God to get, right? The people, you deliver the message, they repent, and you're like, I'd rather die, God. Why are you doing this, God? Let's talk about that. That's because he's a strange character. <laughs> yeah, again, in this book, John, there are multitudinous unexpected things. Right that's occurring within the literature, within the narrative. And, and again, I want to revisit the idea that these are not textual or theological cadavers. We're not just looking back on individuals as though they were not real. Right. What you see here is a real man who was a real prophet, who was the most successful First Testament missionary. Right. Who didn't want to be successful. Right. And what we're going to see here is this peak in the book is going to bring things to a head. And whereas in the beginning of the book, Jonah was silent as most prophets brought up their contention earlier when they were called, he ran. And now at this particular point where most prophets are settled with that, he's going to become contentious with God and take up his ought of disagreement, whether that's vocal or silent, whether it's in prayer, that'll have to be discussed. But he's going to now contend with God over. Well, and this is in this chapter. This is going to be the most conversation be- before between <clears throat> God and and Jonah. Before it's it's God tells Jonah, and Jonah doesn't say anything. He just responds with his actions. And then now, and then in chapter two, he prays from the belly of the fish, and then God responds with his actions, following up, you know, Jonah and then. You know, Jonah delivers the message. But now you have now you have Jonah, you have God and God's prophet now facing off, which is an, an unusual thing. The prophet of God to first of all be so unwilling to deliver God's message. Yes. And now re- revealing now you get the, in chapter four you actually get you get a revelation of, of Jonah's own his own heart, mm-hmm. which has been kept secret during this whole time, right? We've we focused on you know Jonah and the fish and all that and the, and the message, but now we're getting we're getting a clue of of where Jonah is and something as something as simple as 
God's message being received yes. by the people and they're repenting, you would think, hey, it's a cause for celebration. But it says Jonah was, it says it was, he was greatly displeased. And we could talk about the words in, in that yeah. verse because that's a, a word that's been used throughout the, in, in Jonah especially. It's the word ra'ah, I mean, to be evil. It was, yeah, it this, was, this term ra'ah. <clears throat> Um, Rah! <laughs> <laughs> that is used has been particularly used throughout the book. Right. Um, we could trace its usages, but I'm going to look at it thematically now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Ninevites have been doing evil. Right. Or wicked. Right. That's the word, and God, as a result, has promised to bring... Calamity, Calamity, the translators right. choose to translate it. Right. But but I think that that in this case, he has chosen to bring calamity that is evil. It's the same Hebrew word right. upon them. So it's going to be a calamitous result of judgment that God is going to bring. Right. But when they see that God is going to bring Ra, evil or calamity, right. then they shuv, they turn from <clears throat> their evil or their Ra, right? And so God then turns from the calamity, the raw, the evil right. that he was going to bring on them. Not that God is doing evil, right. but he's bringing about calamitous judgment upon them. That's what he promises, right? Right. But then at this point, when, when, when the, the uh, Ninevites decide that they're going to relent, and so God decides that he's going to relent, right? Then the one person who's not relenting from his raw is, is the prophet, right? It, you know what it is. It's and we know. I don't want to skip ahead. Um, God is first of all. It's like God is allowed to relent. You know, he he mm-hmm. says in uh, was it Jeremiah? Uh, Jeremiah eighteen, right? There's mm-hmm. a a famous passage that describes how God works. Let me let me just read that Jeremiah eighteen. And I think it's verse 7. <clears throat> Jeremiah, Jeremiah. Okay, here we go. Jeremiah 18, verse 7, I think it is. At, well, here we go. Um, um, at one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up and to plant or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. So now then speak to the men of Judah. And it goes on from there. It's basically saying I, I, I could do that. So here God is saying, it's almost as if it's it's almost as if Jonah didn't realize that this wasn't a this was a conditional thing where hey I'm going to destroy you, but they respond and and God says I get to do this because they responded appropriately to my message and they repented. It's almost as if Jonah was like no he should have destroyed them no matter what. Yeah, let me let me qualify that theologically, John, and suggest we have on one side or on one level. The transcendent immutability of God in right. his stately character. He doesn't perfection. change. Right. God doesn't mutate. God right. doesn't change, right? 
However, in his imminence, in his nearness, and in his interaction right. with mankind, with his creatures, there's the relational mutability of God. Right, right. In other words, God reserves the right. He'll never change his character, so the standard is still the same. Right. But he can change his relationship to an individual right. who, by the grace and interaction of the Holy Spirit, changes their heart and interaction toward him. Right. So what we see is, no, the standard of God is the same. By the way, a hundred years from the point in this text, in the book of Nahum, ne- we're going to see... How do you say it? Nahum? <laughs> Nahum. <laughs> Nahum. <laughs> I speak English. We say Nahum. Okay. The, Nahum. In that book. It is Nahum. It is probably Nahum, because I have to look at the Hebrew and see what the law <laughs> pointing is on that. In that book... <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I've heard one. I've, I've heard one message from Nahum. Really, I've heard one. It was actually a very good message. Oh, that's but, cool. But in all my in all my um, my years of of whatever being a Christian and going to church and studying the Bible, I've heard one message. That's and it was by an tragic. assistant, pa- not even a, actually, not, like like a men's pastor at a church. It was a very good message. And go back that's to cool. I, 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 dig- I digress. <laughs> so, so in that book, then a hundred years later, when the people, the Ninevites, revert back to their raw, their evil, and the wickedness it of is, their ways, it, it is not right? whom. It is right. You're right. That's what the Hebrew so, says. Sorry. So that's okay. <laughs> So, so when they referred, wait, have you had any of these yet? No. Yours is decaf, Nick. Are you sure you got the decaf coffee? I'm positive. <laughs> so in, in that hundred years, then when they revert back, right now, the standard of God remains the same, right? God's um, hatred for sin, his wrath displayed against that. His holy justice right. administered. What we're going to see is that standard is the same. It's still the same. So what we have here is the relational mutability of God at play. Right, right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. God doesn't change. No, he doesn't. But he does adjust how he relates to a heart that is changed by the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, and we'll, it, I'm thinking about Jonah. Is it will, well, we're not there yet. Let me. I won't skip ahead because uh, because he does bring up something. But it says, but it greatly displeased Ra'ah Jonah, and he became very Ra'ah angry. It's, there's a there's a noun, there's a verb there. Right. He's he is not a happy camper, right? He is he is he is uh, he is upset. Because God decided to relent against the the Ninevites, against the Assyrians, and it says, "Hold on, hold on. What does that say about Jonah? Here, God is is willing to to not destroy them, and he's mad, and Jonah is upset about that. Like, yeah. like he really doesn't get he." He doesn't get the the compassion and grace of God. He gets he he just wants to see the enemies burn. It's almost like there's. I think Jonah is a revelation of the heart of Jonah. The book of Jonah actually reveals the heart of God. That God is trying to reveal who Jonah really is to Jonah. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this finally at the last chapter. We're seeing. In fact, he says he and he prayed to the Lord in verse two. 
which is the second time in the book. First time he prays, he's in the he's in the belly of the fish. Yeah, first time in the book. First time in the book is in chapter two. He's listen. Don't wait until you're don't wait until you're in the belly of the fish. Just pray to God. Pray before. <laughs> pray pray when the storm starts coming. Right. But he only prays in chapter two. Uh, we don't see. We don't actually see signs of repentance in chapter two. We talked I, about this. Yeah, I, I don't see any repentance in the the belly of the great fish. So, what happens in chapter two? He prays. Then what happens? I think what we have is not a great prophet, but a great God, right. whose mercy is so astounding that God is going to see to the mission being accomplished despite the obstinance of the prophet, because the prophet even gives um, um, this language that's very odd and awkward, right? Right. Um, um, I looked to your holy temple right? as though there is, or, or, or I looked to your presence. Um, and, and the idea is that he sees himself credited with looking to God right. rather, than, well, rather than God looking upon him in mercy and compassion. So, okay, so in chapter 2, so if you and I were in the fish, first of all, that would scare the living di- daylights out of me, right? And yes, I would be praying to God. I would be praying when I when I got tossed over overboard because I'm in the middle of the ocean. And, you know. But he finally prays when he's in the belly of the fish in chapter 2. He appeals to, to, to the Lord. And the Lord, like you said, the Lord demonstrates mercy to him, right? Absolutely. I, and he even describes back in chapter two, he describes how the how the fish had brought him to the to the bottom of the sea, right? The depths of Sheol, right? Right at that, right in the and, ancient Near East, it's this depiction of where the pillars of the earth are held up, and you come just to that transition before the netherworld or right. the land of the dead. So, so he he's actually going in the fish to the very brink of of death itself. Yes. He's traveled that, and God hears his prayer, and God brings him. By. You would think if you're a man that has come that close to death, and and God, and you have you have experienced the mercy of God, right? Like many people who have who have you know wandered away from the Lord or reject the Lord, and they they get to a point where they are in utter desperation. They do cry out to God. And God comes through and brings them out, right? And they know that if it wasn't for the mercy of God, that that God would that if God had not brought them or rescued them at that point, they knew they were goners, right? And so there's a, there's a there's a a renewed or a, um, a, a, a an appreciation for that. So here's here's Jonah who's just came out of that. You would think. I think, John, he came out of the situation. I don't think that the conviction toward obedience to God or a change of heart concerning those to whom God was sending him to minister had changed. And I think we're going to see that teased out here. It's going to come to a head because he never got rid of that. And that's a good point because, you know, as the reader, we're looking like, oh, Jonah must be a changed man. I mean, if you're, if you're in the fish for three days and, and God hears you, you would think God has changed his, his heart so that, because normally I would think, well, thank you, Lord, for showing them mercy because I understand what it likes to, what it's like to be that close to death and, and, and almost destroyed. Thank you. But you now you see in chapter four, 
You're right. His heart hasn't even changed. So, so let's take the discussion even further canonically, right? What a, George, where's my dictionary? Canonic? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, so let's look at this throughout Scripture. I'm just kidding. Right? I'm totally kidding. What do, you, what, what's what, the, we, what do you want to look at throughout Scripture? This, this, this problem. Because I don't think this is just a Jonah problem. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, if, if I understand clearly, John, that's the tendency of believers. We even see that in the First Testament, right? Yeah. Look at what God does for the nation of Israel, the covenantal right. nation, right? right. And in the wilderness, although they are on the brink of judgment and disaster, multitudinous times, God shows them mercy, and it still doesn't seem to cure their habits. You go to the book of Judges, and when you see the cycles, the cycles illustrate this very self-same thing, that God can remove us from out from under an oppressive people or circumstance, but it doesn't necessarily argue for a change or transformation in the heart and it doesn't necessarily argue for a transformation in convictions or even behavioral tendencies well you see this and you see, i was just telling this talking this with with uh somebody about this so you're, you're reading um the book of genesis okay and i was describing okay who are the first who's the first audience of genesis well it's israel okay right. so well, israel who's come out of egypt God has rescued, you know, the Israelites uh, out of slavery um, with a man and a staff, <laughs> an old man and a staff, right? An old a st- man and a dead stick. A, st- a stuttering old man, not la- uh, lacking confidence, and a, and an old and a, and a dead stick. He used that man to bring out the nation of Israel from the powerhouse of Egypt. And it wasn't even a wasn't even a, a close fight, right? Right, right? So here's Israel. So here's God bringing them out, and now they're learning what's this God like. Well, God had made a promise to Abraham back in chapter twelve, chapter fifteen, chapter eight. You know, throughout Genesis, and He says, Abraham, your people are going to be slaves, but I'm going to set you free. And now they're realizing this God, a He keeps His promises, right? B He's powerful because He with with a man, old man and a staff, and and what He did to Egypt, wow! Mm-hmm. But they're in the wilderness, and they think God's out to kill them, <laughs> right? You yeah. would think, you would think, wow, this must be their hearts weren't even they didn't realize the the, the magnitude. I think you're right. I think. Jonah is actually a picture of Israel itself because, like, we've been recipients of God's grace and mercy, and you would think we would be the first example of demonstrating that to the nations around us because we weren't deserving or and we weren't, you know. But yeah, it's even it's even further than that because you go backward to the first testament. If you go into the transitional testaments into the book of Luke, yeah, in Luke chapter number fifteen, what you see is what Jonah illustrates yeah. is the condition of the eldest son. Yeah, the prodigal son story. Right? Yeah. And and so when you look at all of this, you see that what we need is not not situational modification or behavioral modification. Listen at what David says in the first testament, creating me a clean heart. Yes. Yes. And and, and the Jeremiah thirty one covenant anticipates that what's going to take place 
is God is going to have to give his people a new heart. Yeah. Because, and by heart, by the way, we're not referring to cardia, right? The, the pumping instrument. We, we have right. two ideas here in both the Hebrew text and in the Koine Greek text, and that is the idea of the emotive part of the mind right. and then the cognitive or intellectual aspect of the mind. And so what we see here is God is going to have to give us a new mind, because if he doesn't give us a new mind, behavioral modification isn't going to cut it. Situational um, change is not going to cut it. Right. It literally takes, again, the work of the Holy Spirit right. in and upon the heart of mankind to bring about that transformation. I would just want to read that passage of scripture from Ezekiel. Um, he says, and I will give them uh, a one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart uh, of stone out of their flesh and give mm-hmm. them a heart of flesh. Um, it's interesting. I think, and let's just bring it to now today, because I think a lot of under, a lot of people's understandings of Christianity is, is, looking the part and not realizing that God deep down wants to change our heart, right? And yeah. wants to, and wants to to conform us and and to change us. And of course, when you focus so much on the externals and not get to the heart of the thing, I think that's I think that's precisely why Jesus says you have to be born again. Yeah. You know, um oh it is precisely you have to be born from above, right? Because there's a difference in an ontological change, a right. change in being. Right. And a functional change, a change in activity. In behavior, right. Yeah. And there's a lot of that going on in the church, I think, today, where people are, are searching for or focusing on the behavior modification. Like look Christian. Yeah. Act Christian. But never realizing that God is is wanting to getting into the the recesses of our heart and and change that and i think what's going on today let's just there's a lot of jonahing i'm just i'm making Don't up a word jonahing going on where where we want to divert the attention uh, you know jonah never even brings up his own sin you know back in chapter two with his prayer he never confesses his own sin he cries out to god but says God, I was wrong to run away from you. It doesn't address. But there's a lot of deflection going yes. on. A lot of pointing the finger at somebody else. A lot of what well, Adam did. You know, it's his fault. You know, the serpent's fault. It's Eve's fault. It's your fault. You know, mm-hmm. we have that going on today, and that still doesn't. It doesn't change the fact that that ultimately there has to be a change of heart. And Jonah is is prime example of what happens to a person who just has the part externally, has the part externally as a prophet, but his heart doesn't have the heart of God. Yeah, I, I think it, I think it challenges us. Right, this is what we see in in um, Matthew twenty three with the Pharisees, right? Yes. And frankly, for that matter, Pharisees becomes people's favorite term. You also see this with the Sadducees, do you not? Right. Um, and with the religious leaders of the day, but, right. but this performance, external performance-oriented right. kind of um, um, tendency, right? And and so Jesus has phraseology for this: um, whitewashed tombs on the outside, <laughs> but on the inside, full of dead men's bones. Or um, the the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so do, do what, what they, they say. say. But do not <laughs> uh, repeat their behaviors, so to speak. And and so what you see throughout Scripture is this wrestling match where somehow God has to tackle 
the inner man. Right. Because if he doesn't do that and subdue that inner man, then we will be um, um, uh, prone to uh, behavioral tendencies that are non-integral. And by integral, non-integral, I mean this. I mean integrated. We are not one with what we say right. and with what we do. Our convictions are different than our behavior. So this is why we fight so hard to be not only orthodox, right. standard in our belief, right. orthopathic, right? right. Um, so that we are standard in our emotions, right. and then orthopraxy, right, to have standard in our practices. Yeah. So that's why we, we fight so greatly. Speaking on, on the whole conformity and looking the part with the Pharisees, it's interesting how Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, which are wonderful things, right? Yes. But then it says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Yeah, depart from me. I never knew you. No wonder Jesus says in the book of Revelation to the, one of the churches, I, 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 I stand at the door and knock to a, to a church, to believers, that he's on the outside wanting to come and have, have fellowship you know, with the believer. Mm-hmm. God is more concerned with that relationship than the external workings of what looks religious and, you know, that that and what you have back to Jonah is you have now, you have a prophet who follows a function, but his heart is not near God, and his heart is it's almost like they're, it's like he's on a different he's not even in sync with the Lord, he doesn't you know so it so it begs some some counsel here, John. So does God want me to be disingenuine? No, no. But my genuineness still must submit to God so that he can bring about a viable change. Right, right, right. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend. I, I want to be very transparent, very forthright, very honest. But I can't say, well, God, this is my honest heart, so this becomes my excuse. You no. know how I really feel, right? No, yeah. So on the one hand, it's wrong for me to be disingenuine. But on the other hand, it's wrong for me to so anchor myself in my genuine sin, right? <laughs> right. That I refuse to allow him to transform me at that point. Right. And that's my, that's my point is what I see in the church today. And what we've, what the, it goes back to the garden where it's a constant re- deflection. Absolutely. When the piercing eye of the Lord seeks to see your heart, you know, or when, or when to, to deflect from other people seeing our own shortcomings, you know. Uh, it's like, and that's why, you know, if you if you go to a church, right, and don't put your pastor on a pedestal, right? Don't right. follow him because if he falls and you think he's Jesus, he's not. He's a man. And that doesn't abrogate it doesn't, the necessity to be an example. No, I, I agree. Timothy, be an example. Paul says to Timothy, you know, follow my example, Paul says. I, but we, there is a, there is a um, you have to be very careful and realize we, you know, even as 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 pastors and, and leaders, there has to be great humility and recognition of our own need of the grace and mercy of God, and 
that that um, that we are examples, but follow Christ more than anything else. David, I'm the shepherd of Israel. Right. But Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Right. So I'm a shepherd sheep. Right. Yes. Yes. And so I think, um, um, I lost my train of thought. We're talking about Jonah. Jonah is, he hasn't though, in this whole, in this whole book, he hasn't in one sense, he hasn't confessed or revealed or even realized his own sin. But now in chapter four, you think, okay, Nineveh was showing a tremendous amount of mercy in chapter four. He himself experienced the mercy of God, but yet it didn't, something didn't change his heart. Yeah. And to your point of something didn't change his heart. I do not think that it is incidental that the author is consistently using this word ra'ah Evil right here, right? Um, uh, because on one hand, I agree with the translator in in uh, the verse when when the translator chooses to say, and it it displeased Jonah, right? And that he became um, very angry. I I agree with the translator, but I think that falls short in this way. In that, yes, there is an ire, yes, there is a temper here right. that is flaring. But it is rooted in ra'ah. It's rooted in the wickedness of his that is embedded in his own person that he has so, yet to rid himself. So here, of. now here's. I think this is why in this chap in this book, now we finally get to the point where Jonah's own heart is revealed. Yeah, we we see pictures of it along the way. We, we do, but we, now it right. comes to a head because it's. He says. He says, Lord, was it not, was this not what I said while I was in my own country? Now we, now he's like, Lord, I, I knew it. I, this is what I was talking about. This is, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. So, um, (laughs) John, if I'm honest with you, that phraseology really bothers me. Because he's saying this using the covenantal name of God. Yes, he does, Yahweh. Which, which, which is a covenantal name that has been used. The first time this is teased out yeah. in Exodus, right. the revelation that's given there is one of compassion. Yeah, and he's going, to, he's going to tease that out himself here, right? But then this is what he says when he says, Eternal One, this is just what I thought. I think a better translation here is... This is exactly what I was trying to get ahead of. Right. In other words, I was trying to cut you off at the pass from exhibiting yourself in that way. That's... But how foolish is that to say, I knew they were gracious, compassionate, and so I try to avoid that. Yeah, I was trying to get ahead of that. I was trying to... In order to prohibit that is his ideology. Yeah. Which is interesting in that sin will make you stupid. (laughs) may i tweet you (laughs) yeah tweet that sin will make you stupid um because you think that that you can outrun the omnipresent god (laughs) the all-powerful god you know not just outrun the all-powerful god listen to what he says he says his language if you put it together eternal one this is what I tried to get ahead of when I was in my own country. Right. In other words, what he just divulged in chapter four is the reason his feet were running in chapter one. Yeah. He 
at that point had this in his heart all the time. Now he finally says it. So here's, okay, here's the, so so God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. He says what in chapter one, let's just go back there real fast just to take it. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, First verse one, the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and cry against it for their wickedness. Their evil Mm -hmm. has come up before me. That's all God says, right? Yes. All God says is go to Nineveh and cry against it. Jonah runs the opposite way. Yes. Now in chapter four, we realize because Jonah knew, Jonah knew that God was gracious and compassionate, that his, his being sent by God was actually God's mercy and grave, grace to, and compassion to these people, these Ninevites, the Assyrians that were terrible people at that time. And that warning would have, was still gracious by God because there's a possibility that they would repent. And Jonah knew that uh, that's what would happen. He, I'm, he's, see, because God didn't have to warn them. He could have, he could have just destroyed them. Absolutely. They're not part of the covenant people. He could have just said, you know. But the fact he sends his own prophet, Jonah knows, knows, he knows, he knows. He knew, he knew that God would have the potential of showing them mercy, and Jonah could not stomach that. Well, that argues several things theologically, right? So let's start first with the theology of the sending. Yeah. Um, isn't this the same habit or practice um, of... <coughs> Yahweh in sending prophets to both the northern and the southern kingdom. Right. To 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 send them to warn the people right. in order that they might turn. Right. So God's very sending involves an element of compassion right. and mercy right. packaged in it. Right. Hit Jonah being, of course, I'm going to probably think of Jonah in right the the 800s thereabout. Sure, sure. Right? And so he's already seen enough from the First Testament books before him. Right. From that history and even amongst his own people to know this is packaged in God's sending. Okay, pause. Because with that, I think sometimes... When God sends the modern preacher in the modern era with a message against sin, they always want to say why that God is mean or the preacher is mean, right? not realizing there's mercy in the sending. You know, I wanted to say just in, in attaching on to that is it's one thing if God were to send Jonah to a people that were mediocrely okay, but they're, you know... These Assyrians were they were they were bad people, right? Yes. They were not good people. They did bad things. And so it's easy to show mercy and grace to somebody that is okay. But then there's somebody that's really 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 bad. Ah, that does that person deserve God's mercy and grace? That's where it's a testing of how far does God's how could God be gracious to those people? No way, you know, Jonah yeah, says. Yes. And that's where that's where he gets, it's like the kind of person, how, what is the depths of God's compassion and grace? It tests us when we think those people deserve God's mercy and grace, but these people don't because they're really, really bad. So, 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 so let me interact with you on that. 
and 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 play uh, let's put tension in that let's put tension in sure that. because john israel was pretty bad yeah but they're um, god's chosen people okay okay they're god's chosen people but here's a question <clears throat> the assyrians are bad and they don't have torah right god's covenantal people are bad and they have Torah. They have the Word of God. They they ought to know better. So so so, how do I weigh that? Well, if you're if you're Jonah, you're saying, well, we're God's covenant people because we're His favorite, and He chose us. And there you go. Na na na. Right? Yeah. You know, this argues for an essential it's a, doctrine. It's, it's a prideful thing. Oh yeah. This this argues for an essential doctrine that I think we tend to look over. Because the truth of the matter is, even in the transitional testaments and in the New Testament, from our thinking, right. we rush to the good news. Right. Not realizing that an essential facet to the good news is the bad news. Is the bad news. And so it begs questions, right? It begs the question, because like Pelagius, <clears throat> the third century British monk, right. he believed, well, we were not affected by Adam's fall. Right. We, we, we we're not only that thing, bad. Yeah, the only thing, in fact, we are inherently good. We, we start with a tabula rasa, a clean slate. The only thing that Adam gave us was a bad example. CL, I'm, I'm just telling you, in the church today, especially in America, that's happening. Mm-hmm. Where we're thinking, we're not that bad. Yes. <laughs> I think, I think there's, a, a there's a whole wing of, of Christianity that that has d- diminished the the mm. the seriousness of sin the the ser- the the depravity of man total depravity total depravity yes. it's called progressive christianity that has denounced that has basically has basically described well god god's okay we're okay you know um progressive christianity the emerging church the emerging church yeah. Those, those they don't so what you have here is well we're not that bad to begin with not realizing no we are the assyrians before god our sin affects is affects every single molecule of us yes and, and it's very serious it's it offensive is, to god it is not only offensive to god it's absolutely dangerous to us i don't think people get that and i think and i think you're right with that we have the, the the bad news has been sort of brushed aside, and it's not that bad. So, so the theological danger of that, John, is if the bad news is not that bad, then the good news is not that good. Right. Like, for instance, with Pelagius. Right. Um, so if Adam just kind of misled me and misguided me a bit, right? Right. Well, I don't need a whole savior. Right. All I need is for... An example. Yes. And right. so And so Jesus came as the exemplar. Hey. And so once he showed me the way, why, I can take the rest from there myself. Thank you, Jesus. And go forward. So, right. So God, that was nice of you. Right. Right. I will never forget when I sat in a, in a scholarly conference. <laughs> <laughs> was I there too? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you weren't in this particular room. Uh, um, uh so I know was, <laughs> yeah, you know exactly where I'm going with that. So I won't go there with it. Keep going. Right. So 
I sat in this room, man, and there's this this older gentleman who looks so dignified and yeah. and and so you know if he had just remained silent, the, his look would have just cried wisdom, right? It, it's, it's even a fool he, is declared oh, wise when he doesn't speak, <laughs> right? And so it's when he opened his mouth, and so you know I asked a question in the back because they're they're going this very direction. Yeah, we're not that bad. So I said to them, I said, um, gentlemen, can you tell me? If you take away original sin, what do you recommend that we replace it with? Mm. Uh, Jenga. <laughs> you know, if we take that block, what do we what do we replace yeah. it with? Um, he says in, in a very stately voice, um, "I recommend that we replace it with original good." Okay. I sat there and I thought. So what happens to Christ? Right. What happens to the need for atonement? Right. What happens to the doctrine of sanctification? Right. What happens to any of that? Right. The sacrificial system of the first test. I mean, you just go on and on and on. You, you pull at something like that. And do you realize that that theology, that scripture is a well-woven sweater. It's not a gap sweater. Right. Where you can just pull it through <laughs> and it's like, oh, no big deal, right? You keep pulling at you the strings. Yeah, unwind. And everything is so interconnected. Right. That the whole falls apart, doesn't it? See, and that's the thing is we don't think sin's that serious. Yeah, here's here's Augustine's thinking. Right now, Augustine's, it's not Augustine's thinking original. No. Augustine is trying to articulate scripture. Right. Right? So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul's idea is not, and you were misled in your trespasses and sins. No. His idea is not semi-Pelagianism, and you were badly sick or ill, and so what you needed was a doctor to give you a prescription, and you could go and take the medicine yourself. Yeah. Here's his idea. You were dead. You were dead in your sin. Now, now that seems to me to be serious. Very so that serious. we need not a partial savior but a complete savior because I contribute nothing to my salvation. And I think, CL, I think we're, like we said, that's where a lot of the churches, a lot of people don't think they think they're okay because they look at one another, look at other people and say, I'm, I'm better than this. I'm, I'm okay. And, and they've reduced God down to their level. Oh, absolutely. Right. This is Oprah Winfrey doctrine, right? Man is basically good at heart. And so given the opportunity under difficult circumstances, yeah. they will show their best side every time. Yeah. Now, now, here's the problem with that, I think. What Oprah, what the progressive church, what the emerging church, what the liberal church doesn't understand, that even amongst sinners, it is the Holy Spirit that restrains us from being as evil as, evil as, we, could as be. we could possibly be. You know... It's obviously it's human pride that doesn't want to see it that way oh, because we want to. That's it's, it. It goes back to the garden. We're not that bad. It's my. I'm. I'm. I'm better than so and so. Um. But it's interesting when when somebody came to Jesus and he said, "Good teacher, what must I do to etern- inherit eternal life?" And Jesus, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. Referring to God, right? God, God the Father. That's very interesting that Jesus would say that. He, he stopped them on just his introduction. Good teacher. And as if good was being used almost flippantly or casually. Jesus says, there's only one who's good. Let me just, let's just establish that 
he's good. The rest of us are not, right? Um, that perspective, you know. Um, you can't have good news without the really, 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 really bad news. The, f- the fact of the matter is, is that we are all before God dead, hopeless, helpless on our own with our Christ. We, the, 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 um, the prognosis is terribly bad. And we have to, and that's the that's the starting point of receiving the proper diagnosis to say, your sin, though you may not be a murderer in the prison, <laughs> your sin is just as bad as that guy's sin. Well, let's be clear. John. Or just as the the punishment for sin is separation from God, right? Yeah, all have sin and fallen short of the glory of God. L- let's be clear, John. The diagnosis is not. You're terribly sick. That would be good. Right. right? The diagnosis is not you have four-stage cancer in the fourth stage. Right. The the diagnosis is not you're on ICU in a comatose situation. Yeah. The diagnosis is you are not even in the morgue. You are actually dead, dead. Right. Right. Completely, absolutely separated and incapable of toward God. Now, when, when Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's, he's at that point saying, he, he's not um, um, denying that he's good. He's arguing, you do know that it's God that's good. Right. If you call me good, right. you're calling me God. Right. Oh, that's profound. Go on. I'm- and, and so the good news is good news because it's God news. Right. And to any degree that it's not God news, that's not really good news. Right. So what has so I know we, we can go in different directions, but what has happened is we ha we going back to, 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 to Jonah and then not realizing that Jonah's own heart was just as evil as the Assyrian Ninevite heart that God so wanted to be compassionate to That that realization of of needing a savior, needing God to do something. When you're dead, you can't do anything, right? When you're dead, you're dead, and which means that Jesus, of course, you know, when he says this to Nicodemus, "Hey, unless you're born again, right? Yeah, you can't. Unless you unless you cuts to the chase, John chapter three. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of of of, of God. Can't can't see heaven, and he just." Your religiosity means nothing. Your holding to the law means nothing. You need a new birth. You need something. That, you need God to do something to you that you can't do to yourself. Absolutely. Um, anyway, back to Jonah. I don't know how we got it. So, so, so this is what stuns me when I'm looking at this. Again, the Ninevites are doing evil. Yeah. God is going to bring judgment Ra'ah, right? Um, evil calamity upon right. them. In the wake of this knowledge, they turn from their evil. Shuv, right? right? They relent from that. Re- and God then relents from the calamity that he was going to bring on them. Right. But then God's relenting divulges in a very major way the evil... Right dubbed anger 
in the prophet's heart. So he now prays to the Lord. Again, that's interesting because the first time he prayed was in desperation to save his own neck. Right. Now he's praying because he doesn't want God to save their necks. Right. So he prays to Yahweh, the covenantal God, and he says, I tried to get ahead of this. He takes the reader back to chapter one. This, when you see my feet start running really fast in chapter one, right? this was the whole reason, <clears throat> because I tried to stop this by es- attempting to escape to Tarshish because I knew. Now we come to the whole heart of the whole thing. And, and, and what really gets me here, John, is it's going to be God's character that's making him angry and God's character administered in compassion and mercy right. toward the wicked. And the first time that this phraseology right. is ever stated and unpacked in scripture right. was in the midst of very deep wickedness in the nation. Right. You have you have Jonah who's who's saying I, I knew you're gracious and you're merciful and and or compassion slow to anger, anger but in loving kindness and and uh, one who relents concerning calamity it's in Exodus it's in Joel it's throughout mm-hmm. the Old Testament right um it's as if and this gets to the heart of Jonah this gets to really where Jonah's heart is God. Those people don't. Those people are so bad. They don't deserve your mercy and compassion and grace. But yet, it's interesting when we think about God. A lot of people think of God in the Old Testament as being very judging. You know, very, very mean. Right? <laughs> yes. Oh, the God of the Old Testament is very mean. You know. Yeah, yeah. What you have here, though, is God is very long suffering. Right? He would rather show compassion and mercy. Than destroy people. Yeah, it, that that's that's more that's the that's the thing that gets me is is the misunderstanding that God is actually very compassionate and gracious throughout the Old Testament, and He's very, um, very much long suffering, or the word is long nosed, and you know He's He's very much would rather He's looking for ways to be compassionate or to to reveal that you know He's look giving opportunity after the opportunity after to, to re, for people to repent and change you know. John, just just a just a quick survey, right? A, a very moderate survey. Genesis three, he said in in chapter two of Genesis, the day that you eat thereof, dying you shall die. Dying shall die. Now they did die in that they were separated from God instantly. Right. However, they should have completely been condemned and damned right there. Right. The mercy of being able to walk out of that garden, go to chapter number four. Yep. Premeditated murder. Cain kills Abel. Right. And so what does he do? He puts a mark on you so that no other person. So he's protected. Right. So then you go from there to, and he died, and he died, and he died in chapter number five, five. right? Yep. But Enoch walked with God, and, and he was not, for the Lord took, took him, him right? right? You go to Genesis 6 through 9, the, the thoughts flood. and inclinations of men's hearts were evil continuously, but he leaves. He could have wiped out the entire species of humanity, but, but he leaves eight 
right. alive, right? Right. And then when you go from there into chapter number 11, right? You get into chapter 10 and chapter number 11. Now you see what? The Tower of Tower Babel. Babel. He could have wiped man out again, yep. but he changes their dialect. Right. He doesn't kill them and he spreads them out because they refuse to do that right. in obstinate and in high-handed sin to God. Right. Then out of all of that universal picture, he centers in on one man who, by the way, doesn't even... Who is not even a worshiper of God. There, there's no way that God is not merciful, right? God chooses Abraham, Abraham, Abram, and and Ur the Chaldeans who worship the moon or one of the gods back then. It's you like go on and on and on, right? Yeah. yeah. Here's the next thing. It's that complete we need nonsense, to, right? Here's the next <laughs> thing that we need to look at. By the way, one of the reasons why people come to that conclusion is because the judgment of God is seen in the First Testament in a more experiential, externalized way. It's more overt. Immediately, well, well, plus, if you will. well, think about this too: is that even he says in the prophets, he he talks about how, I mean, you, you, when Israel or Judah um, rebels, and he sends prophet after prophet after prophet mm-hmm. after prophet after prophet, and he sends warning after warning. You're talking about years and years and years and years. It's people have this impression: well, you didn't you didn't follow me this? Well, you know. Off with you, you know? Yeah. It was long time, long time. Absolutely. But what you see is you see these external expressions, right? Wherein the ground opens up. Yeah. Where, where um, Nadab and Abihu are, are hit with lightning and they die and, but, and go ahead. But I was going to say, but some people today going back to the, the, they don't think we have anything wrong. No, 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 in other words, some people think, well, we're not that bad. God's, that's so harsh of a, reaction to, to her, they'll, they'll be oh they're, they're not that bad. that's because they don't understand total depravity and right. the extent of cosmic treason no back to Jonah real fast is is I think about Jonah not having mercy and compassion he should have right he received mercy and compassion from the Lord Nineveh has is received mercy and compassion he should have celebrated that and say oh, Lord you're so good because I know what it's like to receive mercy and compassion. Ah, oh, I, I was there. And you did that for me. And now you're doing that for these people. Thank you, Lord. And it's like Jesus uh, addressing the Pharisees. He says, he, he who has been forgiven much, loves much, right? And the Pharisees had a hard time with Jesus because he was forgiving people who were the outcast and the, the prostitutes and the, the worst of the sinners, not realizing that they were in just as need of God's mercy and compassion. Yes. They were the Jonah of of that day. And even today, religious people who think they're not that bad. Yeah. I want to make sure that I pin that point, that the point I was making just a moment ago. So they come to that conclusion from the First Testament. And then you get to the transitional testaments, the Gospels, and the New Testament proper, And it's not that you don't see external acts of judgment, right? Right. Like, for instance, um, Ananias and Sapphira, who instantly dropped dead. Yeah. Uh, You could go on and on, right? But what you have here is, because they would try and pit God of the First Testament against Jesus Christ, the God of the New Testament. Well, first, that's very bad theology, right? Yeah. But here's the second thing. Do you realize that the preacher in all of Scripture, First or New Testament, who says more about hell than any other person is Jesus is Jesus. Yeah. The second thing is that the judgment in the first Testament is very external 
that judgment is meted out very clearly in the text, right? Yeah. Through external um, phenomena, cataclysmic phenomena. Do you realize that the judgment that is carried out in the New Testament, that was anticipated in the First Testament, right? right. Is the lake of fire. Right. So, 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 so actually, judgment comes to its zenith there. And at the cross, right. what we see is the intensity of the love of God right. and the intensity of the judgment of God. Yes. So the most judgmental place in Scripture is the cross. Right. Right? And, and, and the place where that's going to be culminated on the sinner, if he or she does not repent, is ultimately in the lake of fire. So you can't make these false... Well, so what you're saying is, is Old Testament, the judgment was external... It was within a certain period of time. It wasn't. Yes. It's a fallacious. It's theological conclusion. Let's you know. Obviously, we're going to. We're we're not going to finish the chapter today. We're actually. <laughs> <laughs> Did you expect? Were to you do that surprised? That? <laughs> oh, that's so good. We're enjoying a part. What are we? Part twenty. How many verses? We're in part twenty of a four chapter book. But that's how we like to talk really deeply about. Jonah, but you know, um, but that's where the the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the grace of God culminates in the cross. The judgment, the love of God culminates in the cro- in the cross of Jesus. That sin, sin is serious. It killed God's son. Yeah, sin is serious. He died for that. He died for, he died for the sin. If it wasn't serious, he didn't have to come. But he he lived the perfect life, and he, he took that punishment, because that's how serious sin is. You don't have the most extreme cure for nothing. Right. John, I think what, what I really want is Jonah makes me aware that I need Yahweh to deal with the sin in me. Right. I need him to address in me, you know, the fruition of that in anger. Oh, that person got away with it. Right. Which, by the way, they didn't get away with it. Oh, that person is horrid. All the time, missing what's really latent, right? alive, what's festering in my own soul. Um, it causes me to realize that I really do need to allow God to be God, not just for me when I really want him to be God for mm. me, but I need to allow him to be God for others. I need him to demonstrate his relational mutability. I, here's, here's, let me just say something that's really difficult, right? Lord, when a person has, has had an abortion and they are repentant, change how you act toward that person. Mm -hmm. When a drunk driver has injured someone or there was a fatality and that person pays the consequences here now, but if they're in jail or if they're in prison and they lift up their eyes to Yahweh and they bow their knees in genuine humility, do for them what you did for me in Christ. If there's an individual who's a drug dealer or a prostitute 
or you name the list that you think is really bad, right? Help me on the pew to see that I'm just as bad, that I'm just as dirty, and except for the grace of God restraining and constraining me, that could have been the fruition and the outplay of my totally depraved nature. Right. So help me first to thank you. Help me secondly to carry your message of hope and freedom to the outcast, to the lost. And help me, while that grace is being poured through me, to realize how much I need it for me. Because if I don't realize how dark and deep sin is, I'll never realize how illustrious and how glorious Jesus really is. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.